Welcome to the History of the World podcast. My name is Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 2, The Ancient World. This is Episode 1, Early Dynastic Mesopotamia. In episode 22 of volume 1, we introduced Mesopotamia and the emergence of its civilization. We mentioned the emergence of a settlement in Mesopotamia called Eridu, and we mentioned that this city emerged in around 5400 BCE. Eridu was built near the mouth of the Euphrates River which over time is no longer the mouth of the river, thanks to silting pushing the shores of the Persian Gulf back towards the Arabian Sea. Eridu prospered during the Ubayid period of Mesopotamia, which by 4000 BCE was replaced by the Uruk period, named after the settlement of Uruk. Uruk was built on the ancient banks of the Euphrates River. We believe that Uruk is a terrific example of a small settlement becoming a significant and stratified city-state and was home to tens of thousands of Sumerians. We can see important temples and walls were built at the settlement as the Uruk period of the 4th millennium BCE continued onwards. Another important city of the area is Ur. At the time of the Jemdet Nazar period, which replaced the Uruk period in around 3100 BCE, Ur was not thought to have been in any way as significant as Uruk, but was definitely a growing urban centre among the marshlands of the banks of the Persian Gulf. We can describe these three settlements as Sumerian settlements. There were many other Sumerian settlements too. So what exactly is Sumer? Well, we could describe Sumer as the first civilization of Mesopotamia, where the definition of a civilization is an urban stratified society. Urban meaning a dense population of people living in one area, and stratified meaning a class-based society with a ruling elite at the top and a working or slave class at the bottom. Sumerian settlements were to be found right the way through Mesopotamia, in and around the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, at least as far north as the modern city of Baghdad, in Iraq. What makes Sumer special is that we begin to find evidence of the earliest writings dating to this period of the Sumerian civilized city-states and we can start building a story of our history without solely relying on archaeology.
where we begin to study, interpret and translate these writings, one of the first things that becomes evident is the strong spiritual belief system of the Sumerian civilization, as the Sumerians themselves actually recorded the origins of Sumer in their own writings. Sumerian King List The German-American Assyriologist Hermann Hilprecht was the first person to discover a reference to the Sumerian King List. Now, we need to discuss and dissect that last statement. Hermann Hilprecht was born in Stasfurt, which is now in modern-day Germany, and he was born in 1859. He moved to the United States after gaining qualifications in Germany while in his 20s. He was an Assyriologist, which is somebody who studies ancient Mesopotamia. Even though the Assyrian Empire only existed for part of this period and in a part of this land. Hilprecht discovered many artefacts in Mesopotamia and one of them was a cuneiform tablet. Cuneiform is the ancient writing of Mesopotamia and a tablet is a flat piece of stone or clay suitable for inscriptions. Since Hilprecht's discovery, many more similar artefacts have been found which after translation appear to reference a history of Sumer, particularly through the listing of its rulers. Although the tablets are not identical, it is clear that they are referencing a similar historical timeline. It appears that a lot of the tablets are from just before or during the second millennium BCE, which is the millennium after the emergence of ancient Sumer. But it is the fact that these artefacts reference the period of ancient Sumer that make them so interesting and relevant to our story. The tablets recognise that many city-states existed in Mesopotamia and that many of them had their own king. Kingship is something that these cuneiform tablets declare as descended from heaven to the town of Eridu. Apparently the first king of Eridu was Alulim who lived for 28,800 years. Now, I wasn't there, but I do have a problem with this information. Firstly, I can't find a lot of evidence of any human living for almost 29,000 years in history. And secondly, if I was to believe that Alulim and his successors were ruling for a total of 250,000 years, then that takes us back to the very origins of Homo sapiens, and there is very little archaeological indication of Eridu existing before the 6th millennium BCE, let alone the 248th millennium BCE. The one interesting thing that these tablets reference is a flood. Eight rulers in turn ruled Sumer, and then there was a flood. Then there were dynastic rulers. Now, one of the most well-known flood stories of ancient times is the one within the book of Genesis of the Bible. When Noah built an ark and took a limited amount of Earth's life on board in safety, 
from the catastrophic consequences of the flood. Could the flood mentioned on the Sumerian king list be the same flood? Could this also be the same flood mentioned on the famous Epic of Gilgamesh? Epic of Gilgamesh The fact of the matter is that the Genesis flood story has striking similarities to the Gilgamesh flood story and with other similarities to other events it may well be that the earliest stories of the Hebrew Bible are the same stories that are recorded in cuneiform on tablets in Sumeria. The earliest version of the Epic of Gilgamesh is written on tablets that date back to the early 2nd millennium BCE. Gilgamesh is a king of the city of Uruk and this information is supported by his presence on the Sumerian king lists as a king of Uruk. The Epic of Gilgamesh was likely not written until after this Sumerian period but we can suppose that Gilgamesh himself may well have been a Sumerian period king through analysis of all information available. It is believed that Gilgamesh may have been alive and ruling Uruk around 2600 BCE. Further to the similarity to the flood story, there is also a character called Enkidu, whose story is not dissimilar to the first biblical man, Adam. So there are very much those who believe that the book of Genesis in the Old Testament can find a lot of its roots within the cuneiform writings of Mesopotamia. The Epic of Gilgamesh is a fascinating little story, made all the more fascinating by the fact that it is quite possibly the earliest written story that we have. There are several versions of the story that have been excavated, similar to the Sumerian king list. And there are also more modern versions that appear to have been deliberately altered, perhaps to satisfy the author's desire to add his own spin. However, it is a window into an ancient mind's creativity, so I would strongly recommend listening to an interpretation, and I have a couple of recommendations which I can make for you at the end of the podcast. Sumerian language. So all of these documents were written in a language called cuneiform. The language itself has had to be studied and translated by modern scholars to be able to determine what was being written. Otherwise, these clay tablets would be somewhat meaningless. We will look closer into the emergence of writing in future podcasts. Now, we can't say that cuneiform is the first writing. That would be like going against everything that the History of the World podcast has discovered by suggesting that one day people woke up and invented writing. There is evidence of early forms of writing in preceding millenniums. However, the Sumerian cuneiform represents one of the first distinguishable languages that we can determine that the Sumerian king list and the Epic of Gilgamesh were originally recorded in. 
our abilities to retrospectively work out the language and subsequently translate it has opened up a window into the way that society worked in Sumer. Much is mentioned regarding the kings of Sumer, who are often the star of the show in Sumerian texts. However, there is a great air of mythology within the stories and mentions of gods and various aspects of nature and emotion. There is also emphasis and focus on death and afterlife, as well as the mysteriousness of dreams and how they can serve as omens for the future. So spirituality is a very firmly established cultural aspect and has led us to retrospectively use spirituality to explain many aspects of prehistoric behaviour. Spirituality was obviously a precursor to modern science, especially when it came to explaining the nature of nature itself. The earliest forms of Sumerian language are attributed to the Jemdet Nazar period of Mesopotamian history, which lasted from around 3100 BCE to 2900 BCE and followed the Uruk period. The Jemdet Nazar period predated the early dynastic period, which is the very subject of this podcast. In all likelihood, and in my opinion, I believe that it is very likely that the Sumerian language is something that emerged in a city such as Uruk and then spread out through the travellers, nomads and indeed the traders and diplomats of Mesopotamia. The presence of this language can also give us as historians a great amount of clues about the ethnic identities of peoples. So for example we can see that when the Akkadians, another group of peoples, infiltrated Sumeria later in the 3rd millennium BCE that the languages of both ethnic groups amalgamated to form a Sumerian Akkadian cuneiform language. So the spread of linguistics and languages can be traced and follows, much in the same way that we do with DNA haplogroups. Sumerian Gods It is from the earliest recorded writings that we can get an idea of what the early Sumerians cosmogony, which is another way of talking of their theories of the origins of the universe. If we look at the Sumerian way of life, it is clear that their control of water, especially through their irrigation projects, was absolutely fundamental to their survival. Without the successful usage of water, there would be no successful yield of crops and no way to support the community. Water was essentially a giver of life, and Sumerians recognised this and respected this spiritually. All sources of fresh water were believed to have been supplied to the Sumerians from aquifers. Aquifers are the water-saturated underground sedimentary layers. These aquifers were called the Engur or the Abzu. The first Sumerian gods are believed to have come from the Abzu. Reading various texts can often be quite confusing when attempting to piece together 
the stories and relationships of the Sumerian deities, as some translations can appear to contradict each other, or can use two different names to represent the same deity, or can appear to shift in translation from text to text and even from culture to culture. So rather than pinpoint a definite translation or explanation, it is best to try and summarise the mindset of the Sumerian attitude to spirituality rather than state a list of their gods. It appears that they believed that the gods who created humankind originated from in and around the Abzu. One of the most interesting of the gods is Enki who is primarily known as the Sumerian god of water. Enki is directly linked to Eridu, which was believed to be the first city of Mesopotamia. Enki is believed to have been the founder of this city. Enki is attributed with having a hand in the creation of humankind thanks to the advice of his mother, Namu. Namu was a goddess linked to the Abzu. Ultimately, it would seem that the Sumerians would develop a whole list of deities which are recognised in texts recovered from various Mesopotamian cultures. The deities would represent the earth and sky and the planets and even right through to the obscure things such as healing and medicine and even weaving. There was pretty much a god for most things which serves as an echo to animism which pretty much references the fact that everything has a spiritual essence. One thing that does appear to be the case is that many of the major gods are linked to a particular city and as such the main temple of that city will be built to worship that particular god. For example, the temple of Eridu, which has been called the House of Waters, is a temple for the god who created the city, who we have already identified as the god of water, Enki. It would ultimately be the site of a ziggurat. Ziggurats. We briefly spoke of ziggurats towards the end of the prehistoric volume of podcasts when we discussed the emergence of civilization in Mesopotamia. The ziggurat was the defining building of Sumerian temple sites that were built to worship the Sumerian deities. One of the first temples discussed is the House of the Waters, which we mentioned as the temple built in the city of Eridu to honour Enki, the Sumerian god of water. The temple was called E-Abzu, with the Sumerian word E, which translates to house or temple, joined with the Sumerian word Abzu, which we discussed before as the life-giving aquifers underground from which the Sumerian gods originated. Ziggurats are reasonably easy to distinguish as they appear to be built in layers of decreasing size the higher you go. It is difficult to be completely specific about how these ziggurats were used or exactly who had access to them. The ziggurat may well have been the main feature 
of a religious complex of buildings within a Sumerian city and the temple or a shrine could have been at the very top of the ziggurat itself. The most famous Mesopotamian ziggurat would have to be the ziggurat of Ur. Despite all of the political upheaval and warfare that has riddled Iraq in recent times, the ziggurat has been carefully looked after in order for the memory of those once great buildings to be preserved, so it is still there to be seen today. Ziggurats are believed to have existed in most cities of Mesopotamia. Whether they all date back to the early dynastic period of Sumeria is debatable as most of these ziggurats have not survived to the modern age so it is very difficult to tell. However, it is believed that these ziggurats were important to all of the Mesopotamian cultures of the ancient world as restoration projects were still being carried out as recently as the first millennium BCE. It was during the first millennium BCE that the ancient Greek historian Herodotus wrote a series of works which today we call the histories. It is within this work that we can find an excellent practical description of a ziggurat and I quote In the middle of the precinct there was a tower of solid masonry a furlong in length and breadth upon which was raised a second tower and on that a third and so on up to eight. The ascent to the top is on the outside by a path which winds around all the towers. When one is about halfway up one finds a resting place and seats where persons are wont to sit some time on their way to the summit. On the topmost tower there is a spacious temple and inside the temple stands a couch of unusual size richly adorned with a golden table by its side. There is no statue of any kind set up in the place nor is the chamber occupied of knights by any one but a single native woman who as the Chaldeans the priests of this god affirm is chosen for himself by the deity out of all the women of the land. Time. It is highly speculated about the exact origins of the modern way in which we measure time but we certainly do believe that Sumerian cultures are the first to use the denominations of 12 and 60. 12 and 60 seem like very strange numbers to base time measurement on, but it only seems strange because we are so mentally programmed to count in tens. We use the decimal system of counting, where it appears that the Sumerians would have used the duodecimal and sexagesimal methods of counting which are based on 12 and 60 respectively. Why they did this is debatable but it is somewhat understandable. 
if we look at 60, it can be divided by 2, 3, 4, 5 and 6. So it is a very practical number. So we shouldn't be surprised to see such a number be selected. Also, it is important to note that humans would have been extremely aware of the course of a calendar year, not least of all for the purpose of agriculture and farming. And they would have also been very aware of the phases of the moon as they looked to the skies inquisitively for a spiritual connection between the celestial bodies of the universe and the gods which can be attested by the prehistoric megalithic stone monuments which are constructed with definite regard for the objects of the skies. Humans would have had a very clear knowledge that a full moon occurred around 12 times during the course of the year, so 12 was a number ingrained in the fabric of the known universe itself. It is clear from the texts of the Sumerians that these number bases were favoured, so we can feel confident that the origins of there being 12 hours in a half a day, 12 months in a year, 60 seconds in a minute and 60 seconds in an hour would have their origins in and around the cultures of Sumer. Technology. The whole connection of the Fertile Crescent and the mastery of using fire in such a way as to produce temperatures suitable for smelting metals saw some natural technological advances which should be mentioned at this point. If we go back to around 4000 BCE and particularly pre-dynastic Egypt, we can identify that the people of this area were using a mixture of silica and lime to produce ornaments and vessels not dissimilar to those created by ceramic means. Ceramics are fired and the result is that that object will be quite impermeable to water once in its solid state. This process is called vitrification and is something which we attribute directly in the production of glass. Certainly, we can see that the Egyptians were vitrifying the silica lime mixtures to produce what has come to be known as Egyptian faience. The production of Egyptian faience by means of vitrification is often cited as the precursor to the production of glass as we know it today. Glass beads have been excavated within Mesopotamia and they date to the middle of the 3rd millennium BCE. So this actually coincides with the time and place of this week's podcast. Scholars debate whether the production of these beads is deliberate or accidental, but it is the earliest instance of true glass that we are aware of. The fact that this seems to coincide with another technological emergence may be no surprise. Contemporary excavations made in the Near East demonstrate that crucibles were being produced for use in the field of metallurgy. If Sumerians were creating crucibles for the purpose of smelting metal during the 3rd millennium BCE, then it would come as no surprise if they were accidentally producing slag, which is a natural byproduct of metal smelting. The slag itself is a very glass-like material, 
So whether it be accidental or deliberate, Sumerians were very likely capable of producing the first glasses with the technology that they had to hand and were probably able to recognise its textural similarity to obsidian, a very practical volcanic glass which would have undoubtedly been traded in the region for very many centuries. Another possible accidental byproduct of these technologies is granulation. Excavations revealed gold granules and these gold granules are surprisingly easy to produce with a bit of gold and a bit of heat. The gold will naturally become a spherical object when subjected to heat, becoming a perfect ornamental ball that can be added to a piece of jewellery for example. All of these things would have been the technological advances of the early Bronze Age foundries of Sumer. So it is wonderful to see how prehistoric practices are progressing to become more likened to modern industrial production. The history of the people of early dynastic Sumer. So we have learned of the earliest written artifacts and what they can tell us about the spiritual beliefs of the Sumerians and what they did to worship their deities, including the incredible construction projects made to honour them. We have seen what these texts have told us about the way that the Sumerians measured time and viewed the universe that they lived in. We have also seen how archaeology has demonstrated how technology was advancing in the area. What we haven't done is told the story of the people and what ultimately happened to them. So let's see what the ancient texts tell us about this. We can establish some of the earliest usages of cuneiform and the sexagesimal counting system during the Gemdet-Nazar period of Sumer in around 3000 BCE. Distinctive pottery and cylinder seals were in use and the period pretty much represents the passing of prehistory and the arrival of the ancient. The period which follows this and has been the focus of this week's podcast is often referred to as the early dynastic period of Mesopotamia. This is mainly because early texts such as the Sumerian king list suggest that there were multiple city-states in existence in Mesopotamia at the time and that the passing of governance of the region as a whole was passed from one city to another. Each city appeared to have its own deity and as such had a temple complex incorporated within the city, often with a ziggurat built within them as the main building of worship. The dynasties would pass between cities, so for example the first dynasty following the flood that is suggested to have taken place in historical texts was based in the city of Kish where 23 kings ruled before the next dynasty based in Uruk took over. Other cities that would play their part as the lead city where the Sumerian ruler was based were Or, Awan, Hamazi, Adab, Mari, 
and Akshak. Well, no doubt I've not pronounced any of those correctly. It was clear that the city-states of Sumer were very much competing with each other for the spoils of supremacy over the others. It was during the 24th century BCE that the kingship was taken from Kish to Uruk. This ended the reign of the ruler called Nania and ended the 4th dynasty of Kish. The man who achieved this was called Lugalzagazi. Lugalzagazi was from the Sumerian city of Uma and was the city's Enzi which is a word meaning ruler. He inherited the rule of the city from his father. Lugal Zagazi was extremely ambitious as a ruler and had designs on bringing all of the Sumerian cities under his control. It seems as though Lugal Zagazi was willing to go to any lengths to achieve his goal, sparing no sympathy for those cities that would oppose his invasion. One particular city that suffered heavily at the hands of Lugal Zagasi was Lagash, a traditional local rival of Uma, who both had a history of battling for the same local lands and in some cases needing external jurisdiction to step in and dictate the terms of settlement. The NZ of the city of Lagash was Urukajina. Urukajina appears to have acquired the kingship by deposing the previous Enzi, who was reported to be corrupt and exploiting the city and its people. However, it does appear that the lasting legacy of Urukajina is also one of a ruler who was exploiting the riches of his own city to feed his own greed. It is true that evidence exists that Urukajina was originally a reformist ruler, attempting to right the wrongs of his predecessors, but his agenda soon became clear when he started exploiting the resources of the city's temple. So, a clash was to take place. On the one hand, the ruthless Lugal Zagasi of Uma, on the other, the conniving Urukajina of Lagash. Uma and Lagash, the long-term rivals over the land between the two cities, known as Guedena, were to clash once more. Lugal Zagasi sent his army to Lagash. Once inside Lagash, the temples and palaces were plundered of all of their riches and then set ablaze, something viewed by the people of Lagash as shockingly sacrilegious. It is possible that the fierce resistance of the people of Lagash caused Lugal Zagasi to up his game and send a clear message to those people that he was in charge now. Urukajina abandoned Lagash and escaped to Gursu, but Lugal Zagasi soon took Gursu as well and Urukajina was not heard of again. It is possible that other Sumerian cities who learned of the fate of Lagash felt it would be wise 
to avoid the same fate and allow Lugal's Agassi to assume dominance over them. Certainly, his treatment of Lagash does not appear to be repeated in respect to his climb to dominance over other Sumerian cities. Eventually, Lugal Zagasi was able to unite the cities of Sumer under his rule and altered his title from Enzi of Uma to King of Uruk. As we mentioned right at the beginning of this section of our story, Lugal Zagasi had successfully ended the reign of Nania of Kish in the 24th century BCE and this could be the indicator as to when we can refer to Lugal Zagasi as the main king of Sumer. However, it would be Kish where the beginning of the end for Lugal Zagasi would start and it would be in the far north of his Sumerian empire and quite near to the influence of another northern city called Akkad. Lugal Zagasi had brought Akkad under his influence as he had done with Kish. So initially he would have felt that he had complete control over the whole of Sumer. However, there was an insurrection in Akkad and the man behind it was a man named Sargon. Sargon had successfully become the ruler of the Akkadians and as such had ambitions on pushing Lugal Zagasi out of Akkad and Kish. Lugal Zagasi recognised the threat of Sargon and the Akkadians and rallied the Enzis of the Sumerian city-states to raise armies which could be contributed to a united Sumerian army put together with the purpose of defending Sumer against the threat of an Akkadian army. When the two sides met, in the multiple times that they did meet, Sargon and his Akkadian army would get the upper hand. Lugal Zagasi and his army of armies suffered multiple defeats and were pushed back within their cities. Sargon was not prepared to stop there and it became clear that his ambitions were to completely eradicate Mesopotamia of any trace of Lugal Zagasi's Sumerian influence. One by one, Sargon began to conquer the Sumerian cities, leaving them with breaches in their defensive walls so as to prevent the citizens from recovering and rebelling against their new ruler. Uma, Lagash and Ur would fall to the mighty Sargon and his Akkadian army. Sargon's defining moment would be when he reached the city of Uruk, Lugal Zagasi's capital city of Sumer. A Babylonian inscription states the following. Sargon, king of Akkad, steward of the goddess Ishtar, king of the world, anointed priest of the god Anum, Lord of the land, governor on earth for the god Enlil, was victorious over Uruk in battle. Conquered fifty governors with the mace of the god Ilaba, as well 
as the city of Uruk and destroyed Uruk's walls. Further, he captured Lugal Zagazi, the king of Uruk, in battle and led him off to the gate of the god Enlil in a neck stock. Lugal Zagazi was taken to the city of Nippur in his neck stock and paraded through the city before being imprisoned. During the time which he was imprisoned, Sargon constructed a victory steel. Now, a steel is a stone slab or column on which is carved a relief depicting the events which in this case would have undoubtedly portrayed Sargon's Akkadian victory over Lugal Zagazi's Sumerians. Lugal Zagazi was forced to witness the creation of this steel. Upon completion of the steel, another parade ceremony was organised as the final embarrassment for Lugal Zagazi. Lugal Zagazi was taken to the temple where Sargon and his victory steel were present. And after a glorious victory speech, Lugal Zagazi was executed. Suma had been conquered by Sargon's Akkadian Empire. So what happened to Sargon and the Akkadians? We will have to wait until next week to pick up the story. Thank you very much for listening to this first episode of Volume 2. It's been a long time coming. We've been very patient, but we've got there in the end. And hopefully it was worth the wait. We're now into this ancient period which is full of magic and splendour and stories and imagination-inspiring events and writings. So it's going to be an exciting journey. Now, I did mention during that podcast the Epic of Gilgamesh, which most people who study Assyriology will be very aware of. It's an ancient writing of a a poetic epic and uh, it's quite amazing story to listen to when you consider how old it is. Now, I, during my research, found a couple of podcasts which I really enjoyed listening to in terms of trying to get some kind of feeling of the atmosphere of this piece of writing and uh, I'll introduce them to you. The first podcast is called Literature and History and it's created by Doug Metzger and his episode 3 is all about the epic of Gilgamesh and it gives a very very vibrant and colourful interpretation of this piece of work so if you're in any way interested I strongly recommend that you listen to that podcast. The other one that I'd also like to strongly recommend is the podcast History of Our World. Now, those of you that have been searching for History of the World podcasts um, undoubtedly have stumbled across this work by a gentleman called Rob Monaco and his Epic of Gilgamesh episode, which I believe is episode 7, is really, really well done. It's very entertaining. He uses a lot of clever tricks with the voices and, and that kind of thing that really keeps your attention 
focused on the on the epic itself so another one that i'd really strongly recommend and also i would just like um to know i mean rob monaco hasn't updated this podcast feed of over 70 episodes since 2016 and i'm i'm concerned i'm wondering where he's gone it was such a fantastic podcast very charismatic and uh, it doesn't seem to be doing it anymore which is a real real shame it's a very very good podcast Anyway, I'll see if I can find my way to posting some links online um, relating to those two podcast episodes to try and make it a little bit easier for you. We received a recommendation. The History of the World podcast was recommended on our Facebook page by Josetta Greg Herndon. And uh, she says, My husband has been raving about you and your podcast for months now. They're an absolute nuisance, aren't they, husbands? I finally started listening from the very beginning. I'm on episode four and I totally get why Carter is so fascinated. You are awesome. I love how knowledgeable you are and how enjoyable you are to listen to. Thanks for all the hard work you are doing to share your wealth of knowledge. Well, I'm humbled by how kind that comment is. A very, very kind uh, comment. Uh, A lot of the knowledge that I'm gaining is uh, knowledge that I'm gaining as I'm going along. I certainly do have... Um, and have always had an interest in historical stories and some I have more knowledge of than others but a lot of studying goes into these podcasts so a lot of this knowledge is being picked up as I go along. So there we are, volume two is underway. We've finally got there and we've finally started our story. Next week we're going to follow that story. We're going to go on from what we introduced this week and we're going to follow Sargon of Akkad and his Akkadian Empire what happened when they took over Sumer and what ultimately happened to the Akkadians find out this time next week The History of the World podcast is hosted by Audioboom it is available on Spotify Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Castbox, Podcast Republic, Stitcher and TuneIn. You can also find it on Deezer, Google Podcasts and Radio Public. Feel free to email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com Join our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter 